Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Anika Allen, principal and founder at the Empathy Agency, and Chris Conroy, uh, the partner at Wellspring Group. Chris and Anika, thanks so much for taking your time today. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks so much for having us. Um, We were introduced by a mutual acquaintance as we've been talking about uh, equity work in the nonprofit sector, and I'm so excited to jump into what I hope is a pretty meaningful conversation about what's going on within community-based organizations and how we can be making some changes there. But before we do all of that, uh, could I just ask each of you to introduce yourself because you, you have your different organizations that you work for, but you also work together on some things. And if you could help audience members learn a little bit more about that. Uh, Anika, would you go ahead and go first? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. So uh, my name is Anika Allen. I'm a sixth generation Canadian, an African and Ojibwe woman, a mama of a 25 year old daughter. And I've been a fundraiser for more than 20 years. And in the last four years, I turned my sights on racial equity in a more concerted way. And I do that work through the Empathy Agency. And uh, my work focuses primarily on understanding the impact that identity has on culture and how culture informs our equity outcomes. I coach individuals. Uh, both black and white, and I also coach and train large groups with my partner, Chris Conroy. Chris and I developed a curriculum called the Racial Equity Journey, and it includes three phases of instruction. Um, And I'm going to let Chris tell a little bit more about the work we do together after he introduces the Wellspring group. (laughs) Give me the hard part, I see. No, I'm kidding. Well, uh, so uh, my name is Chris Conroy. I'm a partner with the Wellspring Group, which is a family-run human resources consultancy uh, that I uh, own and operate with my wife, Kadesh Sims Conroy. Uh, Kadesh is a specialist in executive leadership uh, and uh, human resources leadership. Um, It has an extensive background in uh, human resources leadership for both uh, national and international organizations, both uh, for-profit and non-profit. Uh, as for myself, um, I specialize in uh, developing our educational programming. The bulk of my work is uh, focused on um, ensuring that organizations that we work with um, are able to take the concept of racial equity and use it to drive impact on their organizational culture. Uh, to shape their organizational culture in a way that creates an ideal workplace uh, for people across the spectrum of identity. And so um, that that work has been something that we at the Wellspring Group have been working on for quite some time. I had the opportunity to meet Anika in 2016, I want to say, at the Association for Fundraising Professionals Annual Conference. Uh, We were you know, in in a panel discussion uh, at the time, and Anika asked a question of me uh, during the panel discussion, and it kind of led, you know, to me saying, wow, that was a really good question. I should probably have more of a conversation uh, with her about the work that she does. And then that continuing conversation eventually led us um, to think about how we could develop um, a curriculum that focuses on racial equity together for, for nonprofit organizations. And so that's what we've been developing over the last few years. And uh, that's what I'm very happy to, to deliver on with her. 
Outstanding. Thank you both for helping learn a little bit more about you, but also introducing uh, the word equity in this conversation, because I think that this is one of those really challenging spaces we have in the nonprofit sector more than maybe other places, uh, more than government, more than business, I think, where you've got uh, at least a, a general consensus of verbal agreement like, right, we're in favor of diversity, equity and inclusion. What does that mean? Right. And, you know, what does mm. that commitment to bringing about some of that really mean? Because I think that there's uh, levels of that that we, we want to dig into. So before we get into all of what that can entail, how do you uh, talk with charities that you work with about uh, what we mean when we say equity and really putting that on the table in a, in a way? Yeah, I think language is really vital uh, in this conversation. And Chris and I have this conversation with clients frequently. You know, I think it's important to first understand that diversity really is only statistics. It's literally simply mm -hmm. statistics. Mm -hmm. However, this is where a lot of people spend their time, right? Focused on representation. And while rep representation is really important, it can absolutely be a slippery slope into tokenism. So that's diversity. Inclusion highly problematic as well, because, you know, inherent in it is this inevitable power imbalance. You know, questions arise around who is doing the including? What are we including people in? Whiteness, if we're doing that, why are we doing that? Mm. If we're trying to pursue greater equity and ultimately justice, what we want people to begin doing is creating cultures and environments where everyone belongs. And that's where equity comes in. You know, equity is about understanding the disproportionate nature of people's experiences so that we can all begin to, so we can begin to start from a, the same place, right? So it's acknowledging that people have disadvantages and we're not starting from the same place and then putting supports in place so that people can uh, begin from the same line or essentially level the playing field. Nonprofits are simply a microcosm of society. And so the issues in society are pervasive inside our organizations, no matter the size. And so, you know, when we're looking at matters of equity, we need to be thinking about specific people and the barriers that they face and how we can provide support. So that they can, so we can level the playing field. Essentially, what do you think, Chris? Well, I co-sign all that <laughs> to start. <laughs> uh, you know, Anika and I do have these conversations frequently, and so we discuss this almost on a daily basis with with one another, specifically in terms of how language helps shape the ideas that we hope to deliver on, and also shapes the way in which we interact to build the cultures or to at least model how we would hope the organizations we work with would go on to cultivate and build their, their internal culture. And I think that there's two kinds of ways, Steve, that you can approach this question. The first is thinking about the historical development to how we got to the acronym DEI. And the other is just to go straight to the source of what it, what it is that we're actually trying to solve for. So I'll take the more direct route first, and then maybe we can come back to some of the history. Uh, the direct route, I would say, just to bounce off what Anika talked about in terms of the end goal here, 
is that we want organizations, institutions to concentrate on justice when they think about developing their internal culture and their way of being. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether we're talking about diversity or inclusion, uh, we're talking about equity as an outcome, because equity really is an outcome that we're trying to reach. Uh, and specifically, when we bring up the topic of race, we're talking about navigate people navigating power dynamics and building trust. And ultimately, what that means is we're talking about how people can build healthy working relationships where power dynamics are clear and shared and agreed upon and consensual hmm. and where trust is consistently earned and not given because of a mode of status or because of access that someone has to networks of power pre-existing um, what, you know, because those networks of power that we operate in within this landscape, within our world, and particularly within the nonprofit sector exist because there are inequities in, in society. So we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to start and, and, and work backwards from a space of saying, if we understand our individual access to power and we understand the injustices that are associated with having different levels of access to power, how do we build trusting relationships in our institutions that can then inform how we work well together? That's really what we're talking about when we talk about addressing the issue of justice. The evolution of the term DEI though, I think goes, you know, it comes from a long series of reforms um, that are really trying to chip away at the institutionalization of, of white supremacy, um, which goes centuries back into our history, uh, even within the charitable sector. Uh, and so that's a, a longer story. <laughs> right, and a part of what I was hoping that we would get to together is to talk a little bit more about the, um, not just the disadvantage of you know certain types of people in society, but the mm -hmm. uh, structural advantage of whiteness in at least a lot of the organizations that I've been a part of and have worked with. That um, you know, as uh, when Anika and I first met, we were talking about the fact that you know she's sixth generation Canadian, I'm and a fifth generation Minnesotan, which is uh, diversifying rapidly, but you know still a, a, a a relatively white place when I was growing up and the understanding of what was the the norm was sort of whiteness and then everybody else had to participate around that in some way and I think that as we talk about that within the evolution of nonprofits in this community and the structures that they support and the people that they've hired and how they go about asking for money and all these things um, there's there's a power advantage of you know whiteness as a norm in those spaces that needs to to be acknowledged and often I think doesn't come up first. I mean, I think it's easier to talk about disadvantage rather than advantage in some of these cases. Do you see that when you're beginning these conversations with charities you work with? Yes. Um, Anika, I'm gonna I want to toss this to you a little bit because I like the way that you talk about when, when we do discuss issues of advantage and disadvantage. I like the way that you begin the conversation around the inherent power that communities at the margins have and can bring to the conversation uh, that just isn't explored because of the structures of whiteness inside organizations. And I'm wondering 
if you'd be willing to speak to that first before I say anything. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, ultimately what Chris is talking about around, you know, where solutions lie and the people who are on the margins, you know, really is is dealing with uh, my own lived experience and the experience of uh, Black people that I know and it's shared, I think, um, binationally. And, you know, purely through our proximity to pain and to the problem of racism, we have had to generate our own solutions. And we've generated a a variety of solutions in relation to surviving in a world that centers whiteness. And it's interesting because, you know, all nonprofits um, were created with the purpose of solving societal problems and oftentimes those problems, you know, are connected to, I should say, all the time, those problems are connected to an injustice. And yet, you know, the people who, who experience the injustice, the people who feel the, the, the brunt of the injustice are never centered in the cultivation of solutions uh, in our nonprofit organizations. And I think that that is, um, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, mm-hmm. and I think it has been a, an extreme barrier to our ability in as a as a sector to be effective. Yep. Yeah, I, Stephen. Just to jump off what the Nika saying here, like I think that you know the ad, ad, the advantages of being associated with the norms that come with whiteness or, or white power structures, I, I know, you know, it's hard to, to go to the advantages in some ways, because I also see it as a disadvantage for people who have access to racialized privilege, because there's a massive blind spot that we have to institutions that have been started and accelerated by Black folks, by Indigenous communities, by uh, people of color by communities of color across this country and Canada, United States and Canada, uh, and globally now that are often overlooked because they aren't part of those power structures or those traditional uh, avenues of doing business. And we lose out consistently, both economically and in the nonprofit sector, because our, you know, our aperture, so to speak, is limited by whiteness and its investment in this norm that really shouldn't exist. Um, and so, uh, or, you know, it's, it's gone beyond serving any kind of real purpose at this point. And so, you know, I, I, to give just a brief example, I know this is kind of edging the ed- around the edges of, of nonprofits, but Stacey Abrams, here in the U.S. organizing the campaign, the gubernatorial campaign that she had in 2018. And then again in 2020 in the presidential election and working against the tide of uh, just, you know, outright pervasive racism uh, that's apparent in the voting laws and systems that are in Georgia um, had, you know, 
not only went out and through her own, you know, ingenuity, but also the traditions of organizing in African-American community to support access to voting and the support of our own democratic processes here in the United States, you know, went out and changed the course of the entire election and made Georgia a blue state for the first time in 50 some odd years. And so, you know, and, and again, I know it's Stacey Abrams and I know she ran a gubernatorial campaigns and I know we're talking about small nonprofits, but there were a lot of other small community organizing efforts and, 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 and voter registration teams that got along with that particular campaign and were brought along by that particular campaign um, that, that she ran in, in both of those years. And I think that's a perfect example of places where in, in the, like, can you imagine what Stacey Abrams would have been able to do and those small community organizations that were doing such an amazing job, can you imagine what they would have been able to do if they could leverage the Lincoln Project money, right? right. Like, or, or that kind of thing. And I think that's the comparison that I get when I hear Anika talk about the inherent power of people that have created solutions at the margins. Um, and I think of th- uh, institutions like the, the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, network that's across the country and the records that they kept uh, for um, uh, Black community organizations and and Black families around the country uh, that otherwise wouldn't have been kept and there'd be no historical record for that. I mean, those are the things that um, small nonprofits, community-based nonprofits can start to turn their heads toward and think about when it comes to how do we develop new solutions or innovative solutions? Well, they're probably, you know, there's a lot of innovative ideas that are out there that you can start to support. They just haven't got the attention they need in a number of centuries. And I appreciate, Chris, you're kind of calling out that uh, the advantage of whiteness is not without its disadvantages and the harm that systemic racist systems cause to all of us, regardless Mm -hmm. of those things. That's uh, important to acknowledge, but I I think one of the barriers in beginning to dismantle some of those things uh, is acknowledging the place that a lot of these nonprofit organizations have come to relying on the existing systems that tend to be focused and created around these culturally white specific and often exclusive i find systems you know um we've been having some conversations for example about how fundraising gets done which is you know a, a lot of the times uh when we're talking about larger scale individual donors is been thought of and focused around you know here's how um multi-generational old often white money decides to give we are therefore going to shift and conform and put ourselves into this space where you know that makes it more likely for us to get a resource. I think that that example is out there, but part of acknowledging the advantages of those things is to confront them uh, aloud with other people. Mm-hmm. And this gets us into this question of, um, you know, the term white fragility of um, sometimes when you're trying to have an open and honest conversation about the nature of those things in um, all of these systemically racist systems um, with somebody who does get some natural advantages from those systems or has in the past anyway, it it has culturally, I think, within some leadership organizations kind of shut things down where they get defensive going, well, I'm not racist. Therefore, <laughs> my personal advantages that I got, you know, could not possibly be, you know, from these systems or right. whatever. I, I think that we have that 
still happening as much as there's you know been a book by the title and there's been conversations happening more that still seems to me anyway to be a fairly prevalent reaction of well you know systemic racist systems are happening over here but in our nonprofit we're past that now even though we're still doing all the things exactly <laughs> the way we used to do them right uh, anika do you do you run into this and, and do you use the term fragility? Is that a loaded term? How do you help people start talking about their own sensitivity to acknowledging where they are? <laughs> uh, I'm going to flip this over to Chris because this is a really interesting <laughs> one. Um, I do use the term white fragility, but it's interesting. I don't use it in, in, in the context of our work. I don't. Isn't that funny, Chris? Like we mm. don't find ourselves using that term very frequently in the context of our work. Does that mean we don't confront it? Well, we absolutely do confront it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think pretty consistently throughout our work and, and, and as we go through the, 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 the phases with our clients, you know, it does diminish and the volume sort of gets turned down on, on that. But um, I would say, absolutely, we confront it. I, it's not a term I use very frequently, but I would love to hear what Chris has to say on on that topic. Well, yeah, I, I think, so there's a couple of reasons, Steve, why we don't use the term in our work or we don't we don't go to great lengths to belabor the point that people may have fragile emotional reactions to the topic of addressing their own racialized privilege, right? Um, The first of which is, is that, so we have a few disclaimers before we enter into any kind of workshop with our clients or any kind of educational process or any kind of strategic planning process. The first of which is that we realize that people's reaction to encountering their own complicity or their own participation in a system that's inherently racist uh, or their own personal history and how that may align with some aspects of, of, of racial privilege and then how that plays out in their behavior, we understand that people's reaction to that is not in the gray matter. It's in the brainstem. Hmm. Right. So like it's physiological, like people's reaction is, is built in at a very, a very base level of cognition. And so you, you can't prevent that from happening. It's going to happen. The expectation is that it will happen. And so what Anika and I talk about quite frequently when we go in, actually, every time we go into an organization and, and, and build relationships with them is that, Hey, we're here to talk about racial justice and racial equity and how it relates to your culture and your and the decisions and the behaviors that you make as an institution. One of the things you that you can expect to happen in this conversation is that you will that the, this conversation will bring up emotions. Hmm. It's it's intended to do so. What we want you to do as you encounter those emotions is we want you to pay close attention to the beliefs that undergird those emotions. We want you to interrogate and try to, as you have that emotion, first say, okay, what's the emotion that I'm having? Okay, Anika just said that I was racist. Not that Anika would ever say anything like that, right? Like, <laughs> sure we, we don't, we don't approach, we don't approach, we don't approach issues like that, right? Um, but uh, Anika, you know, Anika said something and to me, and it made me upset, it made me offended, right? Um, well, that feeling of offense, what is that associated with? What's the belief that that offense is, that 
that feeling of offense is associated with. Well, I believe that I'm a good person. Oh, that's interesting. So you, I, I believe I'm offended because I believe that good people can't be racist. That's interesting. Hmm. And then do you see, so you see where I'm going with this, Steve, right? Right. Yeah. And so then that provides us with a pathway to do additional learning. It's the questioning of the belief that undergirds the emotion that allows us to go down the path and start to explore what to do with these, these, these beliefs that people have in institutions. The second thing I'll say just really quickly about this subject is that uh, when, you know, because it's not in the gray matter because we're not functioning there. We have to use a different mode of teaching and learning. And that's narrative. Most of the time we do this stuff and it's very academic. It's very dry. And we don't encourage people to use their story, to engage in their story and engage in a narrative form. Um, as we start to think through how we relate with one another, how we build relationships inside institutions. And so that's really important to do. I think uh, thinking about that institutionally, right? What, what does it look like to have a, a, a systemic nonprofit sector that sort of functions with these, uh, you know, white supremacist style tools that it doesn't necessarily think of that way or embrace as a, you know, ideology, but are no, nevertheless continuing to support until we get some of these conversations going and we ask people to um, sit down and, and in whatever ways they can begin to confront that piece of it, confront it. I think the challenge that I run into a lot is is exactly what you were just saying, Chris, that people are like, well, I'm a, I'm a nice person. I therefore cannot be racist. And again, having benefited from and participated in those systems doesn't necessarily mean that level of intentionality to it, but that, that brainstem piece of it. But I think often these conversations get turned around within charities of, well, I mean, the problem is, you know, Jeff Bezos has all the money, you know, and, you know, there's the systemic problem. Um, he happens to be a white guy. So, you know, we can you know look at it that way. But I think that there's more to this level of what's my participation as just an executive director of a small nonprofit, as a board member of a charity that, you know, meets when it's convenient for me to meet, uh, not necessarily when it's easier for other people in community to get together, but the existing board decided on the meeting times. And that's sort of as a self-perpetuating cultural problem that doesn't necessarily bring more people to the board. Mm. Those are the kinds of things that I think are harder to um, acknowledge as these are artifacts and, and results of intended systems that maybe you don't think about, but we could work on. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that long prologue, I, I think, trying to get at the idea of culture in these organizations towards change, that um, if you just ask people, do you, you know, want to be a, a more equitable organization, almost every charity I've ever worked with is going to say, of course we do. Um, now, what are you willing to do about it, I think, right. is the next question. And here's where culture becomes different from just a plan, I, I think. So how do you begin acknowledging that cultural question? And either of you, feel free to jump in first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the way we, Chris and I have organized, you know, our training and our coaching and our support of organizations in their pursuit of racial justice has really been crafted around dealing with the lack of historical knowledge and understanding for why the system exists in the first place. Yeah. You know, our experience has been that, you know, one, once people begin to, to understand, once they're exposed to 
the historical truths that created the system that we're in. And then they are invited into a space where they can explore um, their connection to that historical reality. They begin to emerge with a broader outlook and usually a plethora of questions about why are they only learning this now? A bunch of questions about what does this mean for me in the future and so on. But that, you know, disorientation is really necessary to begin uh, a journey into cultural shift. And so I would say that the historical piece has to precede any of the cultural work, mm. you know, the way our, our training is set up, you know, we do large group instruction with people. We take them first into the unknown mm -hmm. so that they can begin to explore the truth about um, the truth about our system, the system that we are all in. And then they get to explore through narrative um, the lives of other people so that they can locate themselves. And then we begin to look at how their organizations, you know, nonprofits, as I said at the top, you know, exist so that they can address an injustice. So, you know, this notion of board members just getting together whenever leaders, you know, just, you know, we're just here running a small charity. Right. That, that, that focus and that disposition is flawed because in actuality, no matter what size your organization is, you are supposed to be serving to remove injustice or to challenge injustice. And so that focus is really necessary as we move into the other phases of our work that begin to scrutinize culture and we begin to look at identity and values. And it's through that lens that we're able to refocus ourselves on pursuing justice. Let Chris? Me, actually, before oh, Chris, sure. before you jump in on that, let me just ask you yeah. to expand a moment on that thought of understanding and acknowledging the past, because I think something, a very specific example happening much more here in Minnesota in public gatherings now is um, an acknowledgement of the um, the fact that we are generally speaking on either depending on what part of the Twin Cities you're in on Dakota or Ojibwe land. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that doesn't fix the injustice to just go, right, we are on land that was taken from somebody. Um, and it doesn't fix it. But boy, just having that now is a fairly common understanding of, right, this is part of the problem from the beginning, um, right at yep. the beginning. And I, I think that that's uh, an interesting way of um, beginning to make it more comfortable, like this is our real past without necessarily saying, you, you know, person of European ancestry took this land, but rather this land was taken and we are standing on it now. Well, you know, it's interesting, a few things. The beginning of uh, repairing anything requires three things, acknowledgement, reparations, or, or um, restitution, mm -hmm. and closure. So you're right that, you know, the acknowledgement piece is just the beginning. Yeah. And I would go one step further to say, you know, land acknowledgements are, are necessary if they're done well, 
And I think it is equally important that when we're telling the stories of our history, that we are open, honest, and clear about the roles that people played. And so we do need to talk about the land that was stolen. And we need to talk about who stole the land. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about why the land was stolen. And we need to talk about who was brought here in order to work the land. And what resulted from centuries of free labor. Mm -hmm. That's a part of the story. And we have to get into those uncomfortable spaces to -hmm. begin to have that dialogue. That's where the healing begins. Yes. I kind of cut you off a little while ago there. I'm sorry about that, but do you have thoughts on that? Steve, I mean, I think you raised a, you raised a really good example that goes back that, that tied, I thought tied in what Anika was talking about in terms of making decisions from a value-based perspective in a, in a really concrete way. And I do think the acknowledgement of land theft is again, to go to Anika's three pronged steps to start to move towards resolution of harm and healing from the harm caused by white supremacy and institutionalized racism and specific forms of racism, I I uh, I think this example points to something even deeper, which nonprofits struggle with, and it's the notion that we make decisions from a value based values based perspective, and I I don't believe that for most organizations that's true, because most of the way that most of the ways in which we make decisions both at a board level and an executive level is linear, right? So we're talking about 3D or 4D, right? Like three dimensions and four, if you're, if you count time, right? Like we're talking about, okay, we have a five, we have our one-year plan, our three-year plan and our five-year strategic plan. Uh, We, we have our annual budget, our fiscal year budget mapped out. Um, You know, we know our targets in terms of our donors. Uh, It's all linear. It's all, it's all building, geometrically towards some kind of arbitrary goal that we've established for ourselves because we need to be able to show numbers to funders which has nothing to do with the root cause of injustice that the mission is usually responding to in the environment in our culture and so if you actually start from a values-based perspective you're going to do something that's not three-dimensional and linear, you're going to do something that's uh, maybe adding a fifth dimension, which is in and out. It's reflecting on, like, if you peel back an onion, the final layer, like that heart of that onion is the thing that you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to, you're trying to get underneath all of your behaviors to discover what, what the values are that actually drive the behaviors in your organization. And until you can be intentional about saying these are the values that we associate with justice and racial equity. And this is how that those values are specifically going to lead into behaviors at the governance level, at our from our financial decisions to our programming until you can tie how those values dictate behaviors and principles of operation. We're really just using words, right. uh, To avoid the topic of having difficult 
conversations and moving from a place of acknowledgement to restitution. And so I think, you know, just, I mean, again, Anika laid out the the blueprint for the steps. I think to go back to that original, the heart of the matter, right, is we have to be able to guide our organizations from a concrete understanding of what we actually believe are the most important values that are reflected in how we behave now that we know we're part of an unjust system. Let me ask you a little bit about the the smallest level of changes culturally that might kind of acknowledge some of those things that need change. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we've been talking about leadership to some degree um, in Minnesota, at least, and I assume everywhere else, we're required to have at least three members of a board of directors for a charity. That's just kind of you know how the law is set up. Um, but often I, we get back to that point of, well, when does the board meet? Well, it, it met you know when it was convenient for the you know, the three founding uh, privileged white men leaders from 75 years ago to meet. And it's been doing that ever since. And nobody really thought, is that the best way to govern this organization? Is that an inclusive way to do that? Is that really an equitable way to do it? Or is it just what we've always done? Um, And I think that looking at things like, is a 40 hour work week really the the equitable way to approach this is that the is that an intentional thing or is it just a legal structure that somebody put in place um, that you know is part of a system that mm-hmm. is designed to do things um, and I think some of those questions about how leadership can change direction of an organization needs to then kind of bring into question well who's in the leadership room and what is keeping certain people in and certain people not feeling as invited in or are literally not invited in <laughs> um, and I think that that's a um, a question that I, I wanted to raise about this idea of inclusion, and, and Anika, right at the beginning, you kind of talked about the troublesome nature of, of that word versus equity to say, well, we have a system here that as long as you can come to a meeting at six o'clock on a Tuesday night once a month, you can be part of it. Um, but if you can't do that, then you're not included. Um, and it doesn't matter why you can't do that. It just means you're not part of our organization's leadership structure. Um, and I think those are the types of things that we don't often go, wait a minute, that's like a, a, a systemic uh, racist decision that you know somebody who works a 40-hour work week that probably has a partner at home taking care of kids and you know, all the rest of it, they can do these things. And therefore, that's the way to do them. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is, is, you know, if we haven't scrutinized our systems and processes and procedures, then they are all steeped in white supremacy. Yeah. That's the default. So uh, back to what we were talking about around culture change, right? This is about changing culture. And as you begin to do that, you know, all of your ways of working should be affected. Right, Chris and I use an onion model in our uh, strategy work we do with executive teams. And at the heart of the onion is identity, culture, and values. And it is meant to permeate all the other layers of the onion, which include things like, you know, uh, our mission and our vision, our fund development, our HR, our PR, you know, and so on and so on. How often as organizations do we spend time at the heart of the onion, Hmm. articulating those things, as Chris said, tethering behaviors to them so that we know what it looks like when we're living out our values. And when we begin to do that, 
we begin to scrutinize all the other processes and procedures and strategies that we had previously. It's just a, it's almost a natural thing that you will have to do because you begin to see the flaw in the way you were working previously. Chris, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, we, we get this question a lot, so I'm trying to pick through. Yeah. So we, we get and, and we have just a few minutes left, and I still got a couple more things I want to try to get to. So I hear you. So, so I, the long and short of it is this, right? I think you can get, you can reach analysis paralysis when you try to think about engaging, like whether it be recruitment for your board, or recruitment for your staff or your executives, or bringing the group of people collectively together to execute the mission. You can get into analysis paralysis about what's what's equitable and what's not. Um, you know, certainly if you don't examine your values, but even more so if you don't actually, and again, this is tough with, with COVID restrictions, you know, withstanding, right? It's tough to go out and say, you have to get into the community and sit eye to eye with people, but you do. Uh, and in some respects, the internet and Zoom and all this stuff is breaking down barriers mm. to that process. And, you know, honestly, I think people have to get used to being able to say, what's the most vulnerable position I can put myself in? Uh, you know, obviously safe, you know, we're not talking about being unsafe. We're talking about what's the, what is the way where I can disarm people uh, by, and still show that I'm committed to reaching out beyond myself to understand how someone might view addressing the root cause of the injustice that my organization seeks to take on, uh, even though they live in a radical in a radically different lived experience than I do. So if you're a white person and you are trying to take on education policy and you're not looking at segregation of neighborhoods based upon housing patterns and, 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 and racist housing history uh, with, within our, our cultures, then, and then you are not actually addressing the problem, right? So you actually mm -hmm. have to go into a different neighborhood or connect with someone in a different neighborhood, get eye to eye with them, not wear the nonprofit swag to the meeting, come as you are and have a conversation where you can look that person in the eye and say, I'm passionate about this issue. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you're passionate about it because I've done my background research and I haven't come to this meeting unprepared, but I want to know how you look at this issue. And if you were to work with me on it, what would you, what would you need to know about me before you worked with me on it? Right. And, and, and I just, you, you inevitably invite challenge, like, uh, like difficult conversations when that happens. Sorry about that. No, that's okay, Chris. And I want to add to that, you know, I, about 10 years ago, I worked for a mental health organization and one of the ways that they did this is sort of in the reverse of what Chris is talking about. And I think both can happen simultaneously is that they had a consumer council. And so though we didn't refer to, um, our beneficiaries as clients, but we can refer to them as consumers of mental mm -hmm. health services. And so there was a council to the board. So the council advised the board and we had members of the, the consumer council on the board of directors, which mm -hmm. meant there were people with lived experience at every board meeting, influencing how they steered the organization involved in how the organization was led. 
ensuring that the experience and, and, and challenges of people living with mental illness were centered. That's moving people from the margins to the center. We have just a little bit of time left, and uh, I'm, you know, would love to say that here's the 30 second way that charities can start making you know, real progress, acknowledging all of this. But I, I've heard you say in this conversation um, that there are some steps that you do urge people to take, including acknowledgement of where they are now and understanding those things. But if somebody's listening to this and they they say to themselves, "All right, um, this is maybe bigger than I was thinking. Maybe we need to approach this more." thoughtfully than just putting out a, a, a DEI statement on a website somewhere and, and calling that our thing. How do they reach out to organizations like you? How do they begin to say, you know, what do we need to be ready to do and how do we start this work? Mm -hmm. Well, they can certainly reach out to either Chris or I through our, our respective websites or, or through social media. We're always open to having those conversations, but I think that you're right, Steve, that the invitation is first to acknowledge. And one of the ways that you can begin to acknowledge the realities of black people, for instance, is to do what Chris said, if you can get proximate to them, that's really important. And I know, of course, during COVID that is challenging, but there are other ways to get proximate as well. You know, you can read, read about the, the lives of black and indigenous people in North America. You, there are books about, you know, what we experience in the charitable sector. And I think those, you know, those testimonies are vital in our collective opening up of our eyes as the first step. Chris, Great. what do you think? I think that um, we've tossed the term whiteness around a little bit today, and I think it's important, right? So particularly because I think folks that are going to be listening to this are, are may likely be predominantly white institutions, and mm -hmm. they wonder what that means. I think a really good starting point for any institution, particularly if they're a staff 10 or smaller, is to try and identify the question, when did each of us individually in our personal history, whether it be family or otherwise, when did we become white? Because whiteness is constructed, just mm -hmm. like all other aspects of race. I think if you can go back to that point, it's al almost everybody, including myself, can pinpoint a time in their history when mm -hmm. that became the case for them. And it's almost always exclusively connected to some form of systemic or direct personal forms of racism um, that, that are inherent in the way that our society has been shaped and formed. I think that gives you a really good, now what do I do moment to work from. I know my family's history. I know when we became white. We became white when both my grandfathers went to World War II. They were both, you know, poor Irish, you know, uh, kids that had both almost become orphaned during the Great Depression. They went to World War II, they came back, they got FHA and VA loans to move out and purchase houses or in the suburbs or in Boston, and then built family wealth over time by owning those properties, mm -hmm. right? That almost, those programs almost exclusively went to white families and did not go to black vets 
you know, those the, the same education benefits and those same housing benefits did not go. So that program was the one of the largest transfers of wealth in the history of the United States, primarily to families like mine, and it came at the expense of anti-Black racism. Now, what do I do with that knowledge? I think if every small organization that's committed to solving a social inequity in some respect went and looked at that question for themselves, when did they become white? I think they would have a really different starting point for quote unquote DEI work moving forward than they do now. Lots to do and more to talk about, but I'm afraid we are out of time for this conversation. So uh, we will have links in the show notes to contact both Anika and Chris so you can um, learn more, get some other ideas. Um, I really appreciate both of you taking so much time to share your thoughts and experience with a larger audience. Um, It's uh, something that we're going to need to spend quite a bit of time on for a long while, but I do feel like if if all of us pull together um, and do more, we can absolutely start making some progress. So thank you both for doing that. Anika Allen is the principal and founder of the Empathy Agency. Chris Conroy is a partner at Wellspring Group. Both of you, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks so much, Steve.